Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash-like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, we're back. This is another Hotcakes. It's been a little while. And uh, we actually kept on track tonight. With us is the great Dr. Rahul Ganatra and our fearless producer, Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Before we get to them and our picks of the week, Paul, can you tell people, what do we do on this show? Such a great question. Typically, so who we are is we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. And what we do is we interview experts to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, but this time, the experts are us, question mark? I mean, I feel like Rahul has some expertise, and then we sort of muddle through some cases, and he tries to make us sound um, not dumb, and does so heroically most of the time. So this is our much-beloved Peabody Award-winning hotcakes series, um, complete with a new scoring system that you'll hear all about later on. And I would like to uh, apologize to all our older listeners for a later comment uh, that I make. <laughs> <laughs> which was a bad joke that they won't let me edit out. So I apologize. Paul, why don't you give us a pick of the week? Uh, why Why don't I do that, Matt? Um, <laughs> I, I will because don't you Don't sass me, Paul. <laughs> so I, I'm going to recommend a podcast. As as I, I've revealed in prior episodes, um, life has been somewhat or comparatively joyless for me. And so anything that sort of brings me a small modicum of happiness, I, I have to talk up. So I'm going to recommend a podcast um that most people will hate called you talk and talk and heads to my talking head <laughs> which is a spinoff of so i don't know if you remember the are the you Adam talking Scott. you too to me yeah so they did are you talking rem remy and then they came out with an are you talking rhcp remy so they were going to do a chili peppers podcast which i i would have listened to and would have hated because they are <laughs> are not a good band um but then the second episode, they just decided that they were not having a good time and immediately switched to the Talking Heads and have been sort of going through the Talking Heads albums. And if you've ever listened to their any any iteration of the podcast, they, they spent about five minutes talking about the music and about, I don't know, an hour and 25 minutes just kind of screwing around. So it's just, it's <laughs> Talking it's about how they have the same name. Yep. yep. <laughs> and then, right. And then doing sort of sister shows that are then nested within other sister shows. And the whole thing is just kind of this chaotic mess, which I love very much. So if, if you need to sort of put your brain on hold for a little bit and actually just um, enjoy something and laugh at two very funny people who talk about music occasionally, I would recommend you talk and talk and heads to my talk and head, which is on the Earwolf <laughs> podcast network. The, the name just, the name is Rolls right off the tongue. It's yeah, it's spectacular. It's reason enough to listen, I think. Sarah, were you going to give a pick of the week? Well, I was going to get my pick of the week as the uh, beautiful new recalibrated hotcake scale that Raul came up with. Oh, so that's a good tease for that. I think we should we uh-huh. should say that a little bit later. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I will mute myself and exile myself. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Rahul, what's your pick of the week? Well, I also have a musical pick of the week. Uh, well, people are familiar with the electro-funk duo Chromio, right? No, but please tell us about them. So Chromio, I am, because I'm cool. Thank, thank you, Sarah. <laughs> know you're somebody. <laughs> Just unmuted right. herself specifically to make that point, by the way. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so Chromio, they are these two uh, DJs from Montreal. And, uh, you know, like much of the world, they have been holed up during quarantine, during the pandemic. But they have been very productive. And they have uh, actually produced an album called Quarantine Casanova that's really just delightful. If you like funk, dancey, fun, lighthearted music, um, it's really great. They It's all pandemic-themed stuff. Uh, it features such tracks as Clorox Wipe and Six Feet Away, and Roni got me stressed out. I could go on, but you get the idea. <laughs> sounds That sounds just wonderful. All right. So I, I'm going to give a pandemic-themed pick as well. Uh, I'm, I'm changing it up last minute, Paul. I I am re-watching 30 Rock, and I, I was texting oh. Paul this just fantastic line. I, Jack Donaghy is the is uh, Alec Baldwin's character, and he he has at least one just amazing line on every episode. Uh, the one that I think I sent to Paul was they were talking about the uh, page Kenneth and Jack goes in five years, either we'll all be working for him or dead by his hand, which I just thought was a fantastic uh, turn that I did not see coming. And I'm just waiting for the right situation to use that quote in, in real life. It's about got at least once a week, at least once a week, probably a couple times a week, I think of his line when Liz Lemon walks into his office and says, why are you wearing a tuxedo? And he says, it's after five o'clock. What am I, a farmer? I just think about that (laughs) often. I will never have an excuse to say it, but I just, I enjoy it very much. And that's in like one of the first six episodes. They just came right out the gate with like these amazing quotes. So if you, if you haven't watched it or if you haven't watched it in a while, it's, it's fantastic. So with that, maybe we should talk about our, our new hotcakes rating scale. And uh, Sarah, what do you think about this? Is this something that we're, are we going to, are we going with this? You know, I mean, I think if we want to be taken seriously, we have to have a more rigorous research-based, evidence-based scale. And that's what Raul has delivered to us. Paul, is we, we, I believe about five, 10 minutes ago, we actually heard Sarah say, this is definitely the most, this is definitely the most evidence-based hotcakes rating scale that I've ever seen or pancake-based rating it's, scale. It was, it's definitely the most pancake-related, yeah, most rigorous pancake-related scale I've seen thus far. Well, now I'm feeling self-conscious. I can't <laughs> tell if you're making fun of me or not. <laughs> I would never do that. Uh, maybe since Rahul came up with this, it's it's a zero to five scale, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I guess five would be the equivalent of a full stack at this point. And Rahul, do you want to tell us what's a zero and what's a five? Sure. Uh, well, a zero hotcake study is one that I would say uh, is really quite severely limited by bias or chance, and the results of the paper probably are very different from the truth. I would consider this very low quality evidence. Uh, and a five or a full stack, uh, you know, this at the other end of the spectrum is a study that is creative, memorable, innovative, highly practice changing, high quality evidence, and delicious. <laughs> All right. Less vulnerable to bias and chance. So maybe as we're going through these articles, uh, we can we can refer back to this scale, and it'll probably take us a little while to learn it. But I, I, get, I get the idea. I I like it. Paul, will you allow it? I I hate it so much. I'm, I love you, Rahul. <laughs> um, I there is no chance of lending any kind of legitimacy to this. I the fact that we're trying makes me hate hotcakes even more. But God bless you for trying. This is I knew it. I said with love towards you and hatred towards the hotcake scale, which I've hated from minute one and have not been able to get off of the show. So and now I think you've probably firmly ingrained it as part of our uh, mythology. So thank you for that. <laughs> and I thank you for the scale and f- 
for the fact that Paul hates it, uh, which gives me great joy, <laughs> even though he is mm-hmm. one of my best friends, you know, still. Rahul, well, why? I think Paul and you would love my new podcast, Hotcakes Talking Hotcakes with the Hotcakes <laughs> into Hotcakes. Have you listened to it? I mean, it's really good. It seems mostly at my alley. A little esoteric. Yeah. <laughs> Rahul, can you tell us about this this first article? Sure. So the first article. <laughs> Just a seamless transition, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm muting myself again. Goodbye. I'm pulling us out of a nosedive, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> The Curbsiders are sponsored by Pediatrics On Call, the new podcast from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is a weekly podcast for those of you who have made the heroic and dubious question to provide medical care to children. If you do that, this podcast will hopefully help you do it better. Each episode, we'll discuss issues like obesity, mental health, keeping children safe at home, which, of course, is especially germane during this time of coronavirus. Uh, If you're interested in this type of thing, and I don't know why you wouldn't be, Please visit aap.org forward slash on call for the latest episodes. Okay. Um, so the first paper that we're going to be talking about tonight has made a lot of waves in both the lay press and the medical media. And rightly so. This is really important practice changing stuff that uh, we're covering here. Uh, so this is the recovery trial, which was published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this is the preliminary report of a large, ongoing, multi-center, multi-arm trial in the United Kingdom. And this is just the report of the arm involving steroids, um, because this is uh, kind of an important thing to you know have everyone have access to this information at this um, stage in the pandemic. So the question that the authors were asking was, does treatment with glucocorticoids, and specifically in this study, dexamethasone, reduce the 28-day all-cause mortality among patients who are hospitalized with confirmed or suspected COVID-19? Okay, so this was a really large study that was done at like over 170 NHS hospitals in the United Kingdom. And something like 15% of all patients hospitalized in the UK with COVID-19 were actually included in this study. So it's hugely representative. Nothing else I've read for COVID therapeutics even comes close to that. The primary outcome in this study was uh, all-cause mortality at 28 days. Uh, And some of the secondary outcomes they looked at were uh, progression of uh, respiratory distress to requiring intubation and the proportion of people who were discharged alive at 28 days. The comparison in this study was patients were randomized, and it was a little over 2,000 patients who were randomized to the dexamethasone arm and a little over 4,300 patients who were randomized to receive usual care. Uh, There was not a placebo control in this study. Um, patients in the dexamethasone group got usual care plus six milligrams of dexamethasone a day, either oral or IV, for up to 10 days or less if they were discharged or or died, obviously. Um, And the comparison group was just usual care alone, which they didn't really describe and probably varied somewhat at each of the study sites. So really not any inclusion or exclusion criteria for this study. This was pretty broadly representative of hospitalized patients. What was the primary finding of this study? Well, the authors reported a 
large absolute risk reduction in 28-day all-cause mortality associated with dexamethasone use. And further, we saw that patients who received dexamethasone who were intubated, who required mechanical ventilation, the sickest patients in this study actually had the biggest benefit. They had on the order of a like 12% absolute reduction in 28-day all-cause mortality. Um, and I think the relative reduction associated that with that was uh, on the order of a third. And patients who were on oxygen of any level uh, also experienced uh, a large and significant absolute uh, risk reduction for 28-day all-cause mortality. Patients who were not requiring oxygen uh, really did not uh, see any mortality benefit from dexamethasone. In fact, there was a suggestion that those patients may have uh, experienced harm from that, although that was not statistically significant. Rahul, the, th- that was one of the two things that that really struck me from this trial that like, if you have a hospitalized patient that's admitted, they're not requiring oxygen, don't go messing around with steroids. And then the other question that I had asked you about in pre-recording was this, I just noticed that you would imagine the patients on mechanical ventilation were older and sicker, but it actually looks like they were quite a bit younger. And I, I just couldn't really figure out why that would be. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily, I didn't see in the paper where they speculated it. So do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. You're pointing out that the patients who uh, required uh, intubation in this study had a mean age of about 59, and the patients who didn't require any oxygen at all were 10 years older, so they were 69. And usually we think of intubation as a proxy for disease severity, thinking about the sickest patients are the ones who, who require intubation. So my hypothesis for why that group was so much younger I mean, we know that early on in the pandemic, we were probably a little overzealous with intubating patients because we were afraid to use uh, non-invasive ventilation in high-flow nasal cannula due to the risk of generating aerosols. And I think it was, you know, I haven't been in the situation, but I think it would probably be easier to decide to intubate a sort of young, healthy person, you know, without comorbidities. Uh, and you might sort of take pause, you know, with the decision to to intubate an older, sicker person who you're worried might not be able to come off the vent. That that's my only sort of guess as to why the intubated patients might have been younger. I think it's probably not just a reflection of disease severity as we're used to seeing. That's brilliant. Let let me ask this. I remember when the press release came out, and I, of course, because Twitter is ninety percent of my world, there was a lot of of skepticism. I think we as we being doctors as a group were just so punch drunk and felt so sort of beat up by equivocal studies or studies that where the results were reversed or we, what we thought we knew was turned out to be wrong, you know, i.e. say masks say, so that when something came out that seemed this positive, it seemed too good to be true. And a lot of people are like, <laughs> steroids, come on. So now that we have the actual study in front of us, can I be okay with this? Can I feel good about this study? I think you should feel great about this study. <laughs> I, <laughs> Thank you for that. Oh God. I, I think this so bad. This is going to end up being one of the most important pieces of literature from the past year and definitely the most important treatment literature so far in the pandemic. This is a positive trial, right, Rahul? So remembering what you've taught us about looking at these trials, if it's a positive trial, we need to look where were the sources of bias. Didn't see a lot in this trial. It was open label. Is that other than that, is there anything else that you really found in it? Absolutely. No, you're you're 100% right that with a positive study, we have to look for threats to the validity of that conclusion. So are there sources of chance or bias that could make a false positive study more likely? So 
you know, strict inclusion and exclusion criteria can sometimes introduce selection bias by creating a really highly selected study population. And, you know, because this study was very broadly representative of the UK population of hospitalized patients, we are not worried about that. So, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing a concern in terms of patient selection. Um, another source of chance, um, you know, the patients in the dexamethasone group, uh, just through kind of bad luck with randomization, um, ended up being uh, about a year older on average than patients in the usual care group. And if anything, I would expect that to create a bias towards the null, because we know that older age is a risk factor for worse outcomes from COVID-19. So the fact that this study still demonstrated a reduction in all-cause mortality despite that imbalance um, in the unadjusted analysis, you know, suggests to me that, you know, their chance was not working in the direction of a bias towards a positive effect. And th- just that quick overview of major sources of chance and bias, um, I'm not, I'm, I, this does not raise my alarm bells for, you know, this being highly likely to be a, a false positive result. So are we ready to, are we ready to talk about this as a, uh, give it a hotcakes rating as our very first well, on the new scale? Yeah. Is this a five? I'm, I'm ready to give this a five full stack hotcake rating. Wow. Wow. First rating of five hotcakes. That feels meaningful to me. Any special <laughs> toppings? Uh, I mean, I know there Sarah's a fan of the toppings. How many David Burns would you put on top, Paul? <laughs> I, I, we, I can't. I'm. I'm I'm ready to talk about statins whenever you guys are. <laughs> you know, I, I do before we go before we talk about statins and before we leave COVID directly, I want to give a shout out to the great Dr. Paul Sachs. And there he's been writing uh, there's been two blog posts in the recent past that I've seen where he's talked about this home testing. And Rahul, I think you have some connection through your through your wife uh to this Michael Minna who has been promoting this. And the idea with this home testing is that there's going to be these rapid, cheap home tests that are in development or available, but not yet approved, where all you need is saliva. So it's not going to be painful. And it gives you a result in like 15 minutes or something ridiculous like that instead of two weeks. And even though the sensitivity is going to be low, Dr. Sachs is arguing that you you would pick up people with the highest viral loads so they could feel safe going to work or going to school, whatever whatever they need to do, maybe going to the theater even, going to visit family. R- Rahul, what do you think about this, uh, this sensitivity issue, false positives, false negatives? What are some of the pitfalls? Yeah. I mean, I think that this is a really great idea, and it's kind of born out of the realization that our testing infrastructure for COVID-19 is unfortunately not where we need it to be at this point. Many parts of the country are still facing, you know, long delays uh, in in turnaround time for result availability. And one consequence of that is that we are missing positive cases while people are still most infectious. So if we are able to switch to a system that's much more analogous to like a home pregnancy test, where you know people can administer the test themselves, interpret the results themselves, and if we are able to mass produce this on a scale that people could you know have a strip of paper that they lick every day, that could be really a game changer as far as identifying those people who are shedding virus in high amounts. And to me, the sacrifice and sensitivity is an acceptable trade-off here because right now we are not identifying enough people who are infected and switching to a a lower sensitivity strategy that's much more accessible could be something that turns the tide in this pandemic. Paul, did you have any thoughts on this? 
No, nothing that was that would be as eloquent as was already said. Yeah, I, I think if it's a slightly not good test used for more people seems good to me. So, so what Rahul said, except you know, less less smart. So I don't know by the by the time this comes out, I doubt this test will these tests will be available yet. But hopefully, hopefully this will help get the word out about them, and uh, people can, if you know people in high places, tell them tell them you think this is a good idea. So with that, Paul. Let's talk, let's talk some statins because there is more to medicine than COVID, which I'm being reminded now on a daily basis. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully we live in a, in a state that's doing okay. Yeah. Sweet, sweet statins. I'm just, I was so happy to talk. I'm, I'm so happy to talk about something kind of non-COVID related, though I'm sure there are plenty of sort of statins and COVID mortality studies out there that I'm, we can talk about some other time. But I, I wanted to talk about a paper that just came out. Uh, so this is the Association of Statin Use with All-Cause and Cardiovascular Mortality and U.S. Veterans 75 Years or Older in JAMA by uh, or KB Driver Ho et al. And this is, they looked at a question that I feel like comes up more than you might expect where you have a patient over the age of 75 in clinical practice who probably should have been on a statin but was not. Um, and I'm probably not even saying that right. That's not still the specific question that they asked. But someone who kind of comes to you de novo, perhaps they're older, you think maybe they would qualify for a statin, but for whatever reason... They just aren't on one. And so the question they were asking is, in patients over the age of 75 um, who do not have known prior ASCVD, is adding a statin to their regimen associated with lower mortality? And so the primary outcome they looked at were all-cause and cardiovascular mortality, and the duration of follow-up was a mean of 6.8 years. So the population they looked at was, was from the Veterans Administration. So it was the Veterans Health Administration health system. And the users there, the, the mean age of this population group was 81 years of age. So not directly applicable to all of your patients. They were 91% white. They were 97.3% men. So again, not to jump ahead, but one of the not criticisms or even really shortcomings, but one of the things you could say, this is maybe not necessarily broadly applicable, though they do make some arguments about that later in the paper. And they were identified by something called the VHA corporate data warehouse, which is maybe the most dystopian phrase I've read in any study that I've <laughs> ever looked at in my entire life. I just just horrifying, but it, it, it seems like they're, they're useful at least. So the patients they included in the study are patients without known ASCVD and patients without known statin use at the time of inclusion. What they did is they actually sort of followed these patients along. It's a retrospective cohort study, so they, they didn't actually follow them along, but they sort of looked at their care retrospectively and then looked at patients who were then started on a statin during the follow-up time period and then compared those who were started on statins versus those who were not in terms of the primary outcome and then also the... Um, secondary outcome, which was ASCVD events. And so what they found is, I think we could characterize this as a positive trial and that new statin use was significantly associated with lower all-cause mortality and also the cardiovascular mortality. And then even the secondary outcome showed lower significant um, ASCVD events, which are categorized as things like MI, TIA, stroke, revascularization. Um, Paul, to, to quantify yeah. this, I and, and maybe this me, is, maybe, <laughs> and if you can't answer this, I'm sure Rahul can. Yeah, sure. This... This idea of person years, because one of the ways they reported this data is that there was uh, the people that were on statins uh, had a lower risk of death, like all cause mortality. It was 78.7 per thousand person years versus 98.2 per thousand person years. So that's a difference of like 19.5 years between the statin group and the non statin group. And for me, when I look at person years, I'm, I'm like, sure. What's you know, five, <laughs> 10? That sounds good. Yeah, sure. No, less death seems good, but I, I sure. I, why, why, why don't we defer to the person who actually knows what these numbers mean? Oh man. I feel like this is a trap. Um, 
So well, yeah, because Rahul, it just seems it seems like it's a little bit of a, a subjective thing whether or not this this is meaningful to you. Um, right. Or if you're like a population health person looking at this, like whether or not it's meaningful to you. Yeah. I mean, and I think it is useful to think of these data from the perspective of the health of the of the population. And, you know, when you're thinking about person years, I mean, it's kind of a flexible thing. You could think about, you know, if you have a thousand people over one year, these results indicate that we can expect starting a statin after age 75 to be associated with about 20 fewer deaths as compared with patients over 75 who never started a statin. And there are some limitations to that that we'll talk more about. But from the perspective of person years, I mean, this kind of allows comparison to other interventions. So it's kind of a nice thing. And it also allows extrapolation to the population as a whole. Um, As we're sitting talking about this, I'm looking up the number of people in the United States who are over age 75. So the you know, the potential target population of these data. And uh, the Census Bureau is indicating that that's about 18 million people as of at least 10 years ago. Um, So if we extrapolate these results to the entire U.S. population, we get, I'm sorry, I'm just doing the calculation right now. That translates to about 360,000 fewer deaths for that entire population in one year. So has a potentially large impact at the population level when you look at it that way. That's a lot of grandmas and grandpas still living. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> or just weird old... I mean, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll cut that just out. Just people. Why don't we just do people? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's... Oh, you had to make it sad. I had to make it sad. Yeah, it's fine. I'll start a stat with everybody. It's fine. <laughs> so Paul, by not prescribing stat, all right. killed 300,000 grandmas, so... <laughs> Claire, we'll now Claire, leave all this in, Claire. Do not cut this out. This is all, <laughs> this is all gold. <laughs> I, I, this is coming from me, who uh, loves loves uh, older adults and uh, geriatric medicine. So, uh, this this is great news, Rahul, that we can have such such great impact. Okay, thank you for doing that back of the envelope calculation, Paul. What else do you want to talk about with the statistics about this study? Yeah. So one of the things that they, they mentioned that there's, there's a lot, obviously I'm so happy as we mentioned every time that I've been involved in a hot cake show where typically I would say, and then statistics happened and then move quickly to conclusions to have someone who can explain exactly what they did. But one of the techniques that they mentioned was using this propensity score overlap weighting. And then they also sort of followed hazard ratios every two years. It was just some interesting stuff that to me, I didn't quite fully understand sort of what they were doing or, or to how that was beneficial. So I wonder if you could just sort of in broad strokes, talk us through the statistical analysis they did to actually come up with these data. I'd love to. And I'll just say that on balance, in this study, these authors really did a lot of the sort of best practice things that are available to try to account for the fact that this is not a randomized trial. This is observational data that we're using to try to tease apart what the impact of this one specific exposure is on the outcome of interest. So, I mean, overall, I think this the authors did a great job of of you know using the tools available to try to do this. But with propensity matching in particular, I think it's always useful to remind ourselves that like what is the problem that propensity matching or propensity score weighting is trying to fix? And it's trying to fix the fact that this is not a randomized controlled trial. So the allocation of the exposure or the treatment, in this case statins, was not random. 
it was dependent on all of these measured and maybe even some unmeasured covariates that were different between the two groups. So if you just look at what happened to these patients in terms of outcomes, you need some way of accounting for the fact that they are they have different likelihoods of getting the treatment simply because some of them did and some of them didn't. So what the authors did in this paper is they used a method that is quite sophisticated in my view to try to do that. And the you know all you, all people need to know about this in my mind is that they basically calculated a probability for each patient to get the treatment, you know, either statin or not get a statin based on the measured covariates. So this doesn't include unmeasured things, okay? This doesn't include things we don't know about. And then they used the likelihood of whether somebody was in the other group to come up with a strategy to match these people. And the benefit of this is that this really uh, is robust to extreme uh, likelihoods. This is very reflective of people kind of in the middle probability range. And this also produces really uh, precise estimates of the treatment effect. So we should expect to see narrow confidence intervals, you know, small p-values, very precise estimates of the truth. I'm excited to hear you say that because actually one of the things that I noticed, and I was very proud of myself for noticing, that these the confidence intervals were in fact extraordinarily tight um, whenever whenever they were talking talking about the specific hazard ratio. So it's it's it seems like that it did the job that it was supposed to do. Yes, Paul. Something else that I wanted to bring up about this, which surprised me, most the the bigger delta between the groups was in was for all cause mortality, not for cardiovascular related death. So, Paul, does this suggest a pleiotropic <laughs> effect of statins and that we should be putting them in the water? You know, I had what was like a three or four month run where I wasn't doing hotcakes and I thought I was fired from them. And I felt pretty <laughs> OK about that. And I'm starting to remember why I hate them so much. Yeah, it's so I guess. Thank you, Matt, for that transition point. So from a bottom line standpoint, what do I take away from this? You know, we were talking before recording. Like, this is a good study. Like that's I, I'd want it to be flawed. I ha- I would like to find huge problems with it because. I thought that we were past this point where just starting statin therapy would be, be enough to sort of magically reduce your risk for ACVD events or mortality. I thought we had fairly firmly established that it was LDL cholesterol lowering. I thought we established pretty strongly that, you know, it's there's no point in locking the barn door after the horse has been stolen. And now we're sort of back to this. After a mere two years of starting statins in, um, in the patients, they actually had lower events. And so I don't want to think about pleiotropic effects. I don't want to talk about plaque stabilization. I don't want to hear about any of it. But also it seems to be that just starting statins seems to actually have a mortality benefit beyond, I, I, listen, I just don't want to think about it, man. Did you want to assign a number of, of hotcakes to this, Paul? Was this, this sounds like this is towards the upper end of the scale. Don't give them an option, Matt. You just have to ask <laughs> what the rating is. Yeah, no, thank you for, for moving us through this. I, I want to mention a couple of other things real quick, if you don't mind. Sure. Is that just that I noticed that simvastatin was the statin du jour of the time of the study, which is sort of interesting and kind of different from our current practice pattern. So I, Worth noting, I don't think it actually really negatively impacts the quality of the data at all, but I think it's just sort of worth saying out loud at least. And I felt like I had one other genius point, but I think you distracted me with the hotcakes, which have just been lurking behind me this entire time. So I, if I were, with our new system that is validated and, and scientific, I have to give this four hotcakes. And even though I hate giving any amount of hotcakes, I think that this is, it, inter, it answers an important question. It will probably actually change my practice. I will probably be more inclined to provide statin therapy in older patients, if if I think that their life expectancy actually warrants it, um, but I, I think it's I think it's actually an important study that is practice changing. That's that's where I wanted to go with this, Paul. The the authors had some really nice factoids in there. One of which was that if someone reaches age eighty, life tables predict that that person may have another eight to nine years of life left, and statins 
it seems like the time to benefit is something like two to five years. So if, yeah. so if you have what you think is a reasonably healthy 80-year-old, they might live another eight to nine years and statin can have benefit within two to five years. And then another kind of, another fact that is kind of along this hand-wavy pleiotropic thing, Paul, is that there, it seems like statins have a two-year legacy effect when patients stop them. Sure, yeah. Uh, and and I, maybe that's why there there isn't in, we've talked about a trial way way back stopping statins within the last year of life probably doesn't matter because you can still expect that what there's some sort of legacy effect for a little while maybe up to 2 years i think the thing that i found most interesting is if you stand in a darkened bathroom and say a torvastatin into the mirror three <laughs> times the statin fairy comes along and just stabilizes all your plaques so it's um so i i just i don't think i considered that in my consideration of prescribing as well so I a thought you were going to say make a Candyman reference, Paul, but okay. <laughs> so let's go on to the last trial. Thank you, Paul, for assigning a hotcakes rating. The The final trial is one that I'm going to be presenting. It was the TICO randomized trial by Kim et al. It was in JAMA in Ju- this uh, July 2020. And this was looking at ticagrelor monotherapy versus dual antiplatelet therapy uh, after an acute coronary syndrome. And- the reason I wanted to do this is because I've been really interested, I guess it's probably what the past two years, Paul, we've been seeing these articles of shortened dual antiplatelet therapy after PCI or after acute coronary syndrome. And this trial was specifically looking at acute coronary syndrome and specifically ticagrelor. And I don't really use that. Paul, do you, do you see a lot of ticagrelor and, and Rahul, same question to you? No, not at Cashlack North Northeast. That is not our, our, um, Antiplatelet regimen of choice there. Only occasionally, I'm still seeing mostly clopidogrel. And and then the other one, the other so ticagrelor and prasugrel are are what are referred to in the literature as these high potency P2Y12 inhibitors, which I I didn't really make that differentiation. I was just like, oh yeah, they're all like there's clopidogrel and then there's these other ones, but apparently these other ones are thought to be better, but they have a higher bleeding risk. So. Something that I just wanted to point out, since as general internists, we may not be as familiar with the side effects, is that ticagrelor has a warning that uh, in patients at risk of symptomatic bradycardia, including uh, the types like second and third degree heart block, it should give you pause and you may avoid that medication, which I had no, no idea about that side effect. In this trial, which was done in South Korea with over 3,000 patients, so the question from this trial was, is monotherapy with ticagrelor safer than dual antiplatelet therapy after drug-eluting stent placement for acute coronary syndrome? And basically what they're asking, was there less bleeding, but was there no increase in adverse cardiac events? The comparison here, so everybody got three months of dual antiplatelet therapy. And then at three months, patients either were randomized to receive ticagrelor or to remain on dual antiplatelet therapy for the rest of that 12-month period. And then they were tracking bleeding and uh, major adverse cardiac events, which always include cardiac death, MI, revascularization, or stroke. And the results were that they really didn't see an increase in major adverse cardiac events in the monotherapy versus the dual antiplatelet therapy, but they did see less bleeding. So this was a positive trial, but uh, there were some limitations. Rahul, they talked a lot about the power calculation in this. They were they were expecting something like 
18% of patients, uh, the rate of the rate of the primary outcome, which was either bleeding or a major adverse cardiac event, they were expecting a rate of like 18%. And it ended up being a rate of around 6% in the dual antiplatelet group. So how, how might that have affected this, this outcome here and their power calculations? Yeah. I mean, first, I'll just say that this choice of net adverse clinical outcome is a little unusual because we're used to seeing, you know, major adverse cardiac events, you know, things that all have to do with kind of, you know, not enough platelet inhibition. And then we're used to seeing, you know, as a secondary outcome or maybe a separate primary outcome in another study, bleeding events, uh, which is, you know, probably related to too much platelet inhibition. So the primary outcome in this study was a composite of kind of, you know, both ends of the seesaw there. And so it, that's really patient-centered because patients, you know, care if anything bad is going to happen to them. doesn't matter if, you know, if it's a, uh, ACS or bleeding. Um, there's obviously subtleties to that. But I think that's kind of the one of the unique things about this trial was the choice of, a, of an outcome that included kind of both ends of the spectrum of platelet inhibition, you know, sequela of having too much or too little. So the power calculation that you ask about, I mean, usually power is only informative when you're talking about appraising a negative study, because if you have a positive study, then you have a confidence interval that, you know, doesn't cross unity. And so you can, you know, make a judgment about do the do the uh, ends of the confidence interval make sense to me? Is this too wide or is this appropriately narrow? So this study, the, the primary outcome, uh, this was a positive study. Patients who were on tachycardial monotherapy had less composite badness happen to them. Okay, so that's good. But because they had fewer cardiac events in this study than what they were expecting, you have to wonder if you generalize these results to the real world where, you know, people, you know, are, probably have a higher risk because trial participants tend to be healthier. You have to wonder, is this negative finding for cardiac events a true negative, or is it just that there is a difference where we didn't have enough people to find it? So that's what I think they mean by their caution that the study could have been underpowered. The fact that there was a positive finding for the subgroup of, uh, or the the subset of the outcome of bleeding events, I sort of trust that because yeah. with fewer events, if you still see a difference in, you know, component of the outcome, that's unlikely to be a, a false positive from a power standpoint. So, but the, the the false negative is what you have to worry about. So with generalizing this, you know, you have to think, you know, the bleeding part is going to be probably uh, an accurate reflection of reality, but, uh, you know, whether or not patients on tachycardial monotherapy uh, are going to be more vulnerable to major adverse cardiac events, uh, that's the part of the question that in my mind is, is, is not quite answered formally by this study. Yeah. To make sure I'm understanding correctly, the, the bleeding thing the bleeding thing was handicapped here because there weren't as many events as we would have expected. And I think the authors even said they did exclude some patients who were at higher risk of bleeding, but they still found a benefit of decreased bleeding. So that's that's pretty robust. We can We can say that's probably real. But the fact that there weren't a lot of cardiac events... We don't know for sure if the monotherapy would hold up uh, if if we had enough patients and enough events. It, we might have seen a difference between dual antiplatelet and monotherapy. We don't know if it would have been good or bad, better or worse. 
That's right. I mean, there are there, you know, to try to answer that, you can look at these results in the context of other literature mm-hmm. and talking with content experts would be a, a really you know, useful question to ask somebody. There was a randomized trial a few years ago called the Twilight Study, where they, you know, asked basically the same question, but uh, their primary outcome was split between ACS and bleeding. And that study did, you know, also show uh, a lower incidence of bleeding with monotherapy and pretty convincingly uh, no increased signal for major adverse cardiac events. So that's another tool we have in terms of trying to, to interpret the outcomes of this study. Yeah. And, and I should mention there's there's also uh, just from June, there was a meta-analysis, a systematic review and meta-analysis and circulation that included this study. And it was looking at this question of um, early like discontinuation of uh, aspirin and after either PCI or ACS, and they again found it seems like it's uh, it does reduce bleeding risk without really having an increased risk of cardiac events. So you know this this study I'm not going to give it. I'd say this is probably a two or a three on the rating scale, um, especially because the patients in this study they were Korean patients they had this like really fancy ultra thin serolimus drug eluting stent they were getting this uh fancy medication ticagrelor which not all of our patients get and whatever else we just talked about with the the power calculation so i think this is a 2 or a 3 i do think that the evidence is accumulating and i think probably in practice probably next time guidelines are updated we'll see a shorter duration of dual antiplatelet therapy um, when people, and, and probably people will be on monotherapy with one of these more potent inhibitors, but we'll have to learn about how to use them as general internists because both Prasagril and Ticagrelor have some, you know, some warnings associated with them. With Prasagril, it's mainly bleeding in people who are older or underweight or have had a recent previous stroke, which seems like a lot of my patients. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You would think that'd be a large subset. Yeah. That's nothing to sneeze at. So, uh, any any other business, or is this a wrap? Are we ready to go to the outro? I mean, we're fully committed to the hot cake scoring system. Do we feel good about it? Yeah, I I feel really good, uh, Rahul. I think you've made a wonderful contribution to evidence based medicine moving forward, and I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if some journals pick this up. I I, just, I I mourn the loss of our hilarious takes about things on hotcakes and silver dollar hotcakes and <laughs> chocolate chips. It's just, I don't know how our listeners will do without that level of humor that they've come to accept. So I, 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 I welcome uh, the... I know, think they still become spooky. Cake. They still become spooky cakes in October. Um, I think we're invalidating the system. I don't like that at all. <laughs> like us. I, I worry about the integrity of, the, of our rating system if we do that. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's do it, outro. Uh, Paul, do you want to do the honors? Sure. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Mm, yummy. Yeesh. Get sh- <laughs> I need to take a moment. She's get the best the show at notes that. The Curbsiders. What's that? I said she's the best at that. I, I mean, again, I feel like it's it depends on sort of what your rating system is. Um, <laughs> but get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Sarah Phoebe Roberts, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. 
Until next time, I've been Dr. Rahul Ganatra. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. And this has been Sarah Baby Roberts. Thank you to Stuart for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Thank you and good night. Yeah, I'm still Paul Williams, by the way, if anyone cares. <laughs> the end. Oh, Let's go ahead and edit me right out of the script there, Sarah. That's cool. Oh, hi, good Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.